I am. I am. I am swinging from a seven-story window. Throwing parties in a ten by seven cell. It's a stunning the legs I'll go. Put down your pens, put down your pencils, step away from the keyboard and settle in for this week's episode of the Writer's Block. First and foremost, allow me to thank Don and Sally Wright for giving birth to me. Uh, I know I disappoint you on a daily basis, but uh, without you, none of this would be possible. Also, let me thank the Narcissist Cookbook for uh, allowing me to use his music at the beginning and the end of every episode of the Writer's Block. Um, as I, I realized uh, shortly before this show started... Uh, that this is my actually this is my one year anniversary of doing the writer's block. So to everybody out there who uh, has continued to follow, listen, share, and all of that great stuff, uh, thank you. Because uh, without you, I would probably still do this. But you know, you actually give me some sense, <laughs> give me some sense of uh, hope for the future. Um, today, I'm very happy to bring on my guest. Uh, she is a graduate from the very very prestigious Arizona State University. Uh, she is currently running for uh, the Libertarian nomination for president. Ladies and gentlemen, the fantastic and wonderful Miss, Mrs., Miss, Ms., Miss, Mrs., one of those, Kim Roth. <laughs> Thank you for that really just glowing <laughs> introduction. You make me sound like a god. Well, you, you know... We're all godlike. God is in all of us. I think that was something I learned a long time ago when I still read the Bible. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're all made in his image or something. Oh. Uh, <laughs> some words. Some words. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to come on my show. I do appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. No, absolutely. 
So you went to the very prestigious Arizona State University, and uh, did you gr- did you grow up in Arizona? Yes, um, Harvard was my safety. Wow. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm a native Arizonan, so I was born and raised in Phoenix, and I had actually wanted to go to the University of Oregon in Eugene. Okay. But um, my folks wanted me to be close to home, so I went to Arizona State University, and I earned my dual baccalaureate, as you pointed out, in communication and political science. And yes. Before that, I went to Scottsdale Community College, and I got my associates in applied science and motion picture television with the overarching goal of being a film critic. Wow. I at one point had the overarching goal of being a film writer. And uh, <laughs> yep, I've got an IMDb. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, I bet you're equally insufferable at movies too. <laughs> I Yeah, people hate watching movies with me. <laughs> people hate watching movies with me. They're like, I'm like this, like, this is like my controversial thing that I say all the time. Titanic is like the worst movie ever made. That movie's terrible. <sighs> I know. I know. It's like right up there with the notebook on being the most manipulative movie ever. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. The notebook. Okay. I'll give it to you. It wasn't supposed to be a great movie. It was just supposed to be a cheesy Nicholas Sparks movie. Like it wasn't supposed to be good. Titanic. Everybody's like, Oh, it's the greatest movie ever made. Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet. No, that movie is awful. <laughs> movie is so bad and so stupid. And I hate it so much. <laughs> I totally understand. That came out when I was in high school. And so I'd gone and seen it in the theater. And then I went home and being a typical high school girl, I sobbed for the love of Jack and Rose. And then as I got older and more jaded, I was like, that is the most emotionally manipulative movie ever. And why couldn't she make room on that door? Right. (laughs) Hey, you know what guy that I've been with forever that everybody seems to hate, but I don't really know why? Uh Because I never figured out why Billy Zane was a bad guy in that movie. He was pissed off that his girlfriend slash fiance was cheating on him with this broke dude. Um, Right. Hashtag fair enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've been with you for years or whatever it's been. You met this guy a week ago and this is the guy that's going to be your love forever. All right. Sure. And then you're just going to drop $98 million down at the bottom of the ocean at the end. I'm glad she passed away. Um Stupid heart of the ocean diamond. Uh, <laughs> God, I hate that movie. And what makes it worse is it beat out such great movies for best picture. It beat out as good as it gets and goodwill hunting. And both of those deserved it so much more than Titanic. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Goodwill hunting is amazing. Yeah. I mean, I still reference it to this day because it just had such great dialogue and scenes in it. It was such a good it's movie. Such a good movie. Like, there's not um it's less and less now but there used to be a time where anytime i would say how about them apples everybody knew what i was talking about right nowadays not so much and plus everybody got to know elliot smith after that like the whole soundtrack was done by him so r.i.p elliot smith man (laughs) miss that guy only saddest man (laughs) yeah he's the saddest man that ever lived somehow committed suicide by stabbing himself twice in the chest um (laughs) God, That's I punk rock. That, yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> I love me some Elliot Smith. People are like, you don't seem like somebody who's like depressed all the time. I'm like, I got a good cover, don't I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, love me some Elliot Smith. Um, God, <laughs> Miss Misery was such a great song. Um, so I know you, like earlier you and I were talking and um, I, you thought it was funny because I kind of got to the Libertarian Party in the backwards way. 
where I had already done all of the drugs and everything, and then I became a libertarian after I stopped. So how is it that you got into being a libertarian? Was it... Yeah, part of me wants to make the joke and be like, I heard there were free drugs. Yeah. But that's actually not true. <laughs> no, uh, the, the way that I came into the Libertarian Party was I my folks are, they would classify themselves as Reagan Republicans. And Arizona, not so much in Phoenix anymore, because we've had such an influx of liberalism from California, but we have historically been very much a pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of state, particularly in outlying Arizona. And Goldwater was our representative in the Senate for a very, very, very long time. Right. So we sort of already come from that, you know, um, personal responsibility, self-ownership mentality here. So I was primed to lean more toward the GOP because I only thought there were two parties. And I was that for quite some time. But then during uh, Bush, during his tenure, I was so disgusted by the fact that they gave up on the Powell Doctrine talking about how we need to only be defensive when it comes to attacks, not offensive when it comes to our military. I was so frustrated by how that whole thing played out in the advent of 9-11 and the fact that we used it as justification to go into Iraq. And, you know, we right now are still in Afghanistan, and that makes it the longest war, even longer still than Vietnam. So I defected from that neoconservative shift, and I was complaining about the fact that the Republican Party is more fixated on aggressing against other nations and global domination, as well as putting their mores and morals on the rest of society. And the other aspect of kind of my transition wasn't just getting frustrated with the ongoing conflict, but I worked for, for a decade, a LGBT magazine. I was a, I was a film writer. I wrote under a nom de plume. So I had a whole separate character. <laughs> Maybe someday I'll tell you who he was. He's interesting. Anyway, I, 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 I bet. <laughs> but I had a lot of friends in the community and knowing people in the community, getting to know them, being friends with them and recognizing. I just didn't understand why you would put, like, oh, hey, you're not gay. You're not into it. That's fine. But why would you tell other people how to live their life? So right. those twin things kind of shifted me. And then a buddy of mine said, have you looked at the Libertarian Party? And I, I said, no, what's that? So I looked up their platform online and I read it piece by piece. And I'm like, holy crap, these are my people. It's like everything I ever already thought right. is perfectly articulated. So, and that's when I switched. Right. Yeah. So I kind of, when I, when I first started learning more about the Libertarian Party, I, I, I learned about it in the way that many of us do, uh, where I took an online political quiz and it said I was a Libertarian. And I was talking with um, my dad who is a Reagan Republican, now a Trump Republican. Um, you know, he's let's blow them all up kind of guy. Um, love him to death, though. Great guy. Uh, but <laughs> he was he was sitting behind me because we, we both worked at the same office. And I was just like, huh, I just took this political quiz. He goes, what are you? And I said, it says I'm a libertarian. He goes, yeah, that makes sense. And I said, why? He goes, it's a Republican that smokes weed. Went, oh, Okay. And so I was like, well, I want to learn more about Republicans that smoke weed. And so I started looking <laughs> more. He's telling my people. <laughs> yeah. I like these guys. Um, <laughs> I wonder if we can get that arrest off my record. Um, and uh, <laughs> we should totally do that. And uh, so I started looking more into it. And I, at this point, I'd already started kind of like shifting away from the Christian conservative that I had been. And I, if you want to be gay, I don't care. Do, you, do your thing. Like, hey. I'm, 
don't do it in my bedroom, please. But <laughs> you, whatever. You're like, I only have a single bed. Right, yeah. <laughs> I, I sleep, in a, sleep in a twin, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, they, and I was just like, yeah, go ahead and do that. And then I started getting more involved in, um, I started being more like, you know, why should weed be illegal if alcohol is not? And then that turned into why should cocaine be illegal if alcohol is not? And then right. why should heroin or meth or anything else? And then uh, as the Iraq and, and Afghanistan wars continued going on, I, w- I got more and more on the we shouldn't be there. We shouldn't. We went over there for no reason at the beginning, and now we don't have any exit strategy, and it's just costing us lives. And 20. 22 veterans a day are committing suicide and you're more worried about what's going on over there instead of trying to help them here and you're not doing anything about it. So as all of this was going on, I just continued shifting further and further away until one day I was just arguing, arguing with my dad against going to war against some nation that we hadn't started a war with yet. And I was like, what happened? When did this go on? Oh, I guess I'm officially a libertarian now. (laughs) <laughs> you're not quite a libertarian until you start arguing with other libertarians that's true that's true that <laughs> that only took like six more weeks after that uh, right it's a very short leap yeah <laughs> and then like six months later i became an anarchist or something like i don't know and uh far out yeah <laughs> you made it yes really a libertarian now um so when did you decide that you were gonna take the big leap and go for the most powerful office in the land Yes. <laughs> You're like my precious. No, um, <laughs> um the impetus behind, yeah, right. <laughs> so it kind of started as one of those things where from time to time as activists will quip online about like, if I were president, I would do X, Y, Z. Right. And I was talking to John, my running mate on social media. And we had a couple of people say, if you ran for president, I would work my ass off for you. And so he and I were like, oh, ha, ha, that's silly, rough Phillips, whatever. And we talked about it. And I'm like, you know, this isn't a bad idea, actually. Because in 2016, as somebody who's worked in intra-party politics and then on the ground and dealt with all that behind-the-scenes stuff, I, we just sort of wait for somebody else to come in and step up to that role, whether it's, you know, a former Republican or um, someone within our party, or maybe someone who's tangentially associated to, we're always waiting for this person who's got name recognition and a sizable war chest and a bunch of people already like primed to go march to the Capitol with them, which of course, none of that exists. Right. And they do a poor job representing us. They misrepresent what we believe. We end up spending an extraordinary amount of time saying, wait, 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 wait. no, that's not true. That's not what it means to be a libertarian. So we, we, how's the best way to explain this i feel i felt like in 2016 the weld in particular johnson to a lesser extent ended up losing a moment that could have been incredible for us because we had two truly despicable people who were the front runners of both the parties and this was a seat change they weren't going up against an incumbent this was something fresh that was an ample opportunity for them to strike while the iron was hot and say you know, we're anti-war. We're pro-body autonomy. We believe in these things. We want criminal justice reform. We want to pardon nonviolent, you know, victimless criminals. This is what we stand for. And they didn't. They squandered the moment. The little bit of press they had, they spent either making embarrassing gaffes, which, to be fair to Johnson, it was five in the morning and yeah, it was a gotcha that, moment for the media. Right. And so what is Aleppo moment? 
Yeah. Right. Or shilling for Clinton because they would much rather see Clinton than Trump in office. Yeah. And so all of our down ballot candidates, all of our activists, instead of building on that groundwork, they ended up having to reinvent the wheel yet again. When you know, as a libertarian, we have to start way earlier, work that much harder and do most of it by ourselves. Right. And to lose that moment, to lose the momentum, it's it's an extraordinary setback. And I didn't want to wait anymore. I said, I'll do it myself. And I was hoping maybe other people would be like, yeah, me too. And I was like, oh, just me? Just you. Okay, guys. No, just you. Uh, <laughs> so I've worked, I worked on a couple of uh, libertarian campaigns here in uh, Florida. I worked on the attorney general uh, campaign where uh, Bill Wolsifer ran. And, you know, I was out there, I was getting the signatures. I would, we were doing it, we were doing it all and we did it on a shoestring budget. Um, we pulled in just over 5% of the vote, which was great. And I also, awesome. yeah. And then I also worked on uh, the Lucas Overby for a uh, Congress campaign uh, here. And when he ran in the special election, he didn't get that much of the vote, but it was, that was the uh, David Jolly versus Alex Sink. And, um, Verse Overby, and there was so much money being thrown into it, or $26,000 or whatever it was that we had, um, wasn't going to be able to do anything. But then in the re-election that was that following, that the special was in March, I think, and then the re-election was in November. So Lucas just kept campaigning, and it was just jolly versus him, and he ended up getting 26% of the vote. I believe that's awesome. Yeah, so that's really, really good. Yeah, it was it was it was a good time during that period, and then 2016 rolled around. It was Johnson and Weld, and I left the party shortly after that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's tough. Right. There's a, I was talking to somebody just the other day about this. I had somebody call me, and and he had joined about two years ago, and now he's getting to that point that we all kind of get to as activists. Where after having, you know, we come in really excited, like, I I just discovered you. You're my tribe. Come on, tribe. Let's work together and, right. you know, crush the state. And I, I don't care who says it or does it or who gets credit. I'll throw money. I'll throw energy into it. I'll make it happen. I'll build up the infrastructure. And then you have, of course, the old guard or just naysayers who are happy to, to complain from their comfortable seat going, you know, that's not good enough. Or you're just trying to take power. And it just destroys it and so you get to that point where you're like why am I doing this I'm not getting paid I'm not you know nothing's like I'm just doing this because it's important and I care and all I get is assailed for doing this so you hit that point of discouragement and my advice to him and to everybody else is then go around them like stop waiting for permission stop trying to work with certain actors or individuals or agencies go around them you care about it find your niche and do that like the fact that you have your podcast is a really good example you settled into something that was way more authentic and honest and you don't have to ask for permission to do it that's right that's why and I, it makes you happy it does right the, everybody's like where are you gonna run for office I was, and i said never and they ask why and i said because on my podcast i can say whatever i want and if i'm wrong i just go oops i was wrong <laughs> if i run for office and i do something and it's wrong that's a whole different game <laughs> Oh, yeah, especially as a libertarian, just because you have to be you have to keep it correct all, all the, the time. time. Yeah, because the, the maybe 30 seconds of media they'll give you. You don't want to be the person who'd be like, taxation's bad. Right. You know, like you really want to have good, strong sound bites. 
So right, and you don't ever want to have that Gary Johnson moment where he's literally biting his tongue on the air, and he's like, biting, yeah. and you don't want that, and you only get such a small amount of time. So being able to do this and giving other people a, play, a way to learn about politics in a non-threatening environment, because I like to think that this is a non-threatening environment. I'm not really sure how other people view it, um, but. <laughs> In a non-threatening environment where they can learn about it and see what being a libertarian, being an anarchist, being an anarcho-capitalist, whatever, whatever that is, whatever they define me as, because I don't really define myself as any of it. Um, <laughs> Spike Cohen, I kind of want to do that. Um, but uh, whatever they want to define it as, they can learn about it and see that we aren't like just out there off the wall crazy hoping for Mad Max type moments. Although, right. I'm not totally against a Mad Max Thunderdome kind of moment. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Who runs Barter Town? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, be, I'd actually be okay with, you know, a welcome to the Thunderdome kind of election for president. I think that'd just be fun. It would be pretty honest for right. once, as opposed to the nonsense they trot out. I mean, God, 2016, it was, you know, in. Um, not Alice in Wonderland. Now I'm having a brain fart. It was a movie that won the best picture in 1939. Um, first movie that went into Technicolor. Wizard of Oz. Oh my God. Wizard of Oz. Thank you. Isn't that horrible when you have tip of the tongue and you can't remember something like Wizard of Oz? Yeah. Anyway. I mean, I go through that pretty often on this show. I'll be like, you know, that that thing. And Spike's like, evidence? And I'm like, yeah, that. <laughs> right? You know that song with the guitar riff? That's like all of them. <laughs> oh yeah, that one. <laughs> That, right. With the really famous guitar riff. Right. Mm -hmm. okay. I'm just going to mm -hmm. nod with you here. So not classical. Got it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, in The Wizard of Oz, when they're like, this is actually the wizard who's, you know, it's not this big, scary thing with mm -hmm. all the smoke. It's actually the guy behind the curtain. Right. In 2016, they didn't even like they didn't even put up a curtain. No. They're like, oh, no, we're all terrible. <laughs> like at least Thunderdome would be authentic. Like everybody gets a stick. Whoever wins, like <laughs> survives, get to be king for a day before the peasants tear you apart. <laughs> if they if they had done Thunderdome in 2016, Hillary Clinton would have shot uh, Trump in the back of the head, walked out, and said he committed suicide. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what did he know? <laughs> what did Trump know? Apparently, not to turn his back on you. Uh, <laughs> so. I was going to uh, let's talk a little bit about your uh, platform because I'm not going to lie. Like, I love your platform. It's great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so foreign policy. What does it say? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> is it good? It is good. I, okay. I edited it too. So, and there wasn't any mistakes. So good for you. Um, <laughs> I love going to, uh, and I do this a lot, especially with a uh, libertarian sites. Um, I'll go to their websites and take a look at their platform and I'll read it. And I like to count the number of typos and I didn't find one on yours. So congratulations. You're like the first. Thank you. Usually I find so many and it makes me laugh. Do you remember, do you remember Derek Michael Reed's website yes. in 2016? I do. I think, wasn't Bob the Builder on it I as think, well? Yeah. I swear. I had <laughs> <laughs> my website done. I was like. I want it like this, like Derek Michael Reed's. I want all the things. I want, I want everything. <laughs> so, 
Well, yeah, no, congratulations on me not finding a typo. I was very happy about that. That made me genuinely like, like you even more as a candidate. Thank um, you. So foreign policy, your foreign policy is very libertarian. I mean, basically, let's not bomb other people. And I, I do like that. Um, but so one of the things that I, is a question that is asked to me often as somebody who doesn't believe in intervention. Is there an instance, like, since you would be Madam President, uh, mm-hmm. is there an instance in which you would uh, find it acceptable to utilize the military against a foreign nation or organization? Hmm. Only in self-defense. Only in self-defense. So Right. And that doesn't, and that actually doesn't even include, like, because of my foreign policy beliefs and the fact that I am a non-interventionist and an anarchist, that doesn't mean, you know, you were in an area of the world that I consider of my interest. That's not attacking my interest. Right. I'm talking about physically coming into our nation, attacking our people, attacking our property. But even to that end, I would say it's up to the individuals who were harmed, not necessarily for me to say as president, okay, guys, all of you are going to get involved in this conflict because some things went down in the ass end of California, if that makes sense. Like, I really feel that it's up to everyone has a right to self-defense. And to some extent, you can make the argument that by extension, maybe the country could also engage in it, but that would require coercion and force. So I would rather say that those who are directly victimized have that decision to make. And then if other people want to assist by proxy, they have to do so voluntarily. Right. So let's just, let's say if another 9-11 event type sort of thing happened, what would, what would you recommend? Oh, I love that. I'd actually thought about that a lot. I'm like, what would I do? Right. Like finish the kid's story. <laughs> <laughs> and then hide out in a bunker. Right. Uh, um, <laughs> Good goodness. Um, I think in the immediate after effect, you know, because you have to bear in mind that at the time that all this stuff happened, presuming that the official narrative holds true, there was no awareness whatsoever of right. what exactly was going on. So just as we catching little bits and pieces on our TV or the radio, we're trying to put this disparate pieces of evidence together and understand what was happening. So too, presumably, were the people in White House administration. So assuming that to be the case, saying that we are all caught unawares, I think the first thing would be doing an assessment of the threat. Obviously, you want to have complete situational awareness, like what what is happening? Why is it happening? What other possible threats exist? How do we stop them? And the most immediate thing would obviously be grounding airplane travel. You would have to do that in the immediate after effect until you had a good handle on what the situation is. As much as I would like to be able to say, like, you can freely travel, like, you'd have to put the kibosh on it for at least a certain period of time until you understood what you were dealing with. Right. And then once you ascertained who's who and where they're at and what these actors and agents are doing, then you have to figure out, well, obviously the same thing you do in criminal justice, presumably, which is understand what their motivation was, why were they doing this? And there was, we found out relatively quick, relatively quickly who the actors and agents involved were and the impetus behind it. And all of that is blowback from our foreign policy approach. 
all of that comes from the fact that we have for decades, because of the threat of the Soviet Union, and we wanted to stop them from spreading communism, we trifled in the Middle East, we trifled in Southeast Asia, we were in other nations, you know, Eastern Europe is a good example as well. We have been throughout those trying to effectively keep the Soviet Union and communism contained. And in so doing, we have created a lot of bad blood on an international level because nobody likes to have their land occupied. Nobody likes to be told how to live their life. Nobody wants to have their rights curtailed, particularly not by a foreign government. So knowing that, then I think I would have said in the immediate aftermath, after we understood and realized that there was no additional risk coming, that we would cease our foreign policy approach full stop, as opposed to double down and do everything that we'd been doing previously. That's the most illogical thing. If this, if all they're asking is for us to stop aggressing against other nations, stop meddling in their affairs, that's all we have to do to be left alone, then stop doing it. (laughs) It, It's just absurd. Right. And I would agree. I definitely agree with that. Uh, I, I mean, Back in back in two thousand one, I was still very conservative. So I was like, they attacked us. They didn't have any reason to attack us. And it wasn't until I looked into more things, going, well, yeah, we've been doing that to them for decades at this point. Uh, so that you know, Ron uh, Ron Paul had a lot to do with me kind of learning about that and learning about blowback. And that was when I first started seeing it and trying to argue that with neocons is just impossible it's no no what we're doing is the lord's work and what they're doing is that yeah. other that other guy's work um that, <laughs> that other deity that's probably the same person um <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole different podcast yeah that's, a, yeah that's a completely <laughs> different one that i'm not getting into i tried doing theology hour on the last show and it didn't go well for me um <laughs> so uh I also know that you are not a fan, neither am I, of uh, financially assisting other nations. Yeah. Is there any instance in which you would be okay with it? No. No, I really can't right. think of any instance. Well, because you, when you think about, when we typically talk about financial aid, and when we try to sell it to the American public, the powers that be usually couch it in terms of, this country is you know, destitute. And these people are starving. And so we're going to collectively take your resources and send them over there. But in countries that are war-torn or where there's that level of disparity economically, when there are folks that are so segregated from those that are in power and those that are living on the ground, it usually is because they have such a stranglehold on resources. So any financial aid we give, any material aid we give typically only goes to those that are already in power and have a stranglehold on it. It doesn't go to the people that we're trying to assist. We've had plenty of instances where we've sent medical supplies or food or clothing or any other sort of aid to other countries, and it never makes it to the people we're trying to help. If you truly want to assist people in a foreign country, then it would behoove you to research charities that actually have a really good rate of return on donations to contributions and are involved in those countries. Because there are people all over the world who have charitable groups that do assist people directly rather than going government to government. There's always going to be, I mean, at the very best example, there's going to be a loss 
you know, you're getting, you know, 70 cents on the dollar because you're paying for some bureaucrat to redistribute it. And then the people are maybe getting 30 cents on that 70 cents. Right. So it's just cut out the middleman, go straight to a charity and allow them to do it. It's much more directed and it'll go to the people that you want to assist. Yeah. I've got a friend who uh, has recently been getting into uh, the foreign the the foreign flavor of the week, I guess, would be the best way to put it. Like, we need to help this country. And she said, what should we do? And I said, well, you find a charity that's helping that country, and you donate your time and or money to that charity. And she goes, oh, well, I can't do that, but what should like we should do as a country? I said, exactly what I just said. Like, as a right. country, we should not be shipping money or uh, troops or anything else over there. We should be helping them out voluntarily. Because there's going to be people that don't want to do this, and we should not be forcing them to. Right. I agree. I think a lot of this this sort of mentality where we look at government as this cure for all of our existential crises comes a lot from the erosion of community. Because we've gotten so divorced from it, and it is sort of a, a systematic attack by the state on community, whether it's going against the church or whether it's going against the family or whatever other sort of units, that erosion of community and neighborhoods has lent itself where we stop thinking about, well, let me just go next door and talk to this person and work with them to do something healthy. And instead, well, I'm going to vote for a representative who's going to legislate this so that I can feel better about the things that bother me. But it's such a a circuitous and ineffectual way at best of doing things. And it's, of course, aiding and abetting tyranny. So the best thing you can do ever is just like you said, if it's truly important to you, reach out to other people, find charities. And if there is none, start one. You have the capability yourself. Don't wait for permission and don't use the government as a means of accomplishing those goals. Right. And then she was like, well, I don't really have the time to, I don't really have the time to volunteer and I don't make a lot of money. And I said, then it can't be that important. Like that's, you have to worry about you because, and I, like, she's young, 24. I think, I don't know. She's young. And I'm like, I get it. You're, you're going to school. You've got a job. You've got to pay rent. You got your bills. I know that your time is very limited. Talk to other people about it. See if they're willing to do it. Try to spread the word that way, but you can't ask the government to do this because now you're forcing other people who want nothing to do with it to have to do deal with it. And Spike Cohen said, no, damn it. What, should we be doing with not my money? And that's, I mean, that's how so many people look at it. They're like, well, no, that's my money. I, I need that to do these things. And in which case that shows where that shows the order of importance in your right. priorities. And that's fine. Have your order of importance. But if it's something that's important to you, you need to make the time in order to work in order to work. Yeah. On. The addendum to it. And I'm sure you've experienced this yourself as an activist in the party and in the larger liberty movement is, you know, we, when you start to become cognizant of the world around you in the sense that you are aware of how your, how your actions or our actions as a nation impact people on an international scale, and you recognize the wider ramifications of legislation and how it's going to not just affect us in the immediate, but in the long run, there is sort of this desperation and feeling of futility like, because you recognize how bad it is and how much of it needs to be changed positively. So you're like, I don't even know where to start. You know, where, where do I, I want to make it better, but I don't even know where to start. And right. so typically the best thing you need to do, and that this is another thing I say to people, is you need to focus here first. I mean, it's like that oxygen mask metaphor. You're no good to anybody else unless you take care of yourself. 
So take care of yourself first and then extend it out to your family, your community, your immediate neighborhood. Create these little pockets of good. You can't change everything, but you can make something wonderful in your world and that will emanate out as you inspire and affect and influence positively other people. But that sounds so very Marianne Williamson. Uh, <laughs> I was like, if you just get a board and you put your wishes on it, then make it'll your dream, happen. <laughs> you make your dream board. You get a nice little wish board. Dress it up however you want. You put you it out there into the universe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, she's something else. She, Man. You know. <laughs> I was like, oh, Sedona, you lost one. <laughs> You got a lunatic on the loose. Somebody's out there. Now she's running for president. Oh, what did she say? It was something where it's like, if they just had a giant golden egg and they all just felt their feelings around it. I'm like, what? You know what would happen? They kill each other for the gold. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would not work, Marianne. No. But please be in every debate. I hope that she continues getting donations to be in every single debate because it is the most entertaining thing I've ever seen. I know. I'm like, your chakras need to be real. Sister. <laughs> like, oh I'm, I'm upset that Florida is not a uh, open primary state because I would vote for her just to keep her. Really? Just, just for the, just for the shit show, just for the shit show, <laughs> just to keep her going. I would vote for her. That's cool. She's like 2020s Harambe. Right. <laughs> When nothing else counts, go with Marianne Williamson. <laughs> uh, Shane Sweeney said his dream ballot is Ruff versus Weld versus Williamson, which I think he would win. Totally. Yeah. I, I would. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't even think that would be a contest. Everybody go, no, this is, no, we're going with the libertarian. <laughs> yeah. God, it wouldn't even matter what I said. They'd be like, you're not a statist and you're not insane. <laughs> We won. Look at that. I know. Hold up a sign. It's like your joke earlier where you're like, thank you for giving me life. I know I disappoint you daily. <laughs> I want to hold up a sign and be like, I did it, mom. Uh, so one of, one of the big things that the Democrats have been talking about in uh, this cycle has been immigration. Yes. So I know that you are not a fan of the wall. Uh, for many of the I'm a fan of walls. I, I mean, I like these. These are great. Yeah, right. <laughs> I can hang some art on it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny because this is the only one that has it. All the others are bare. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I know you're not a fan of Donald Trump's wall of the of that border wall. Uh, what what would kind of be your immigration policy? Well, mine, you know, it's funny. It's such an interesting and complex issue. In fact, every single issue um, really has a bunch of different aspects that tie into it. So forgive me for my long-winded answer, but there's so many different things you have to address when you talk to the public writ large, which is the question of what do you do with welfare? And we're not just talking about things like whether or not you can get immediate government benefits like that, you know, are they going to get an EBT card? But we're talking about access to public schools, public schools, an example of welfare, access to other shared resources, such as being able to go to the hospital and having other people assume responsibility for paying for your visit using their insurance. Um, so there are different concerns with welfare for most American citizens. And that's one of the main arguments that they typically lob against who comes across. 
Then the secondary aspect are things like because I'm in a border state with Mexico and because there is a huge glut of cartels near the border, there's the assumption that typically the people who are going to immigrate here are criminals and drug users and carrying illegal firearms. And they're going to bring diseases, like crazy diseases that we haven't seen since the 1400s, apparently. (laughs) Ones that we don't have vaccinations for. Yeah, you're like, who has bubonic plague? (laughs) (laughs) That's not a thing anymore. So you have to touch all these issues and then, of course, discuss the issue of property rights. So here is my answer to that. As libertarians, we are against all forms of welfare, not just benefits, immediate government benefits, or whether or not you can get WIC or EBT or anything else like that. But we're also talking about, you know, public education. We're against it. We want it to be privatized. We want to have, you know, people pay exactly what things cost, not be forced into paying other extra ordinary fees in order to support other people's habits or lifestyles, whatever. We're against welfare. We don't think that we should redistribute wealth, period. So there is that aspect to it. The second aspect of it is, as libertarians, we are for the legalization of narcotics, which would totally kill the cartels because there would no longer be a black market. So if you want to eliminate that issue and the concern for crime, then you need to end the war on drugs full stop. The third thing, as libertarians, we support our Second Amendment rights. We believe firmly in the right to self-defense, which means that people should have at their access and disposal the ability to acquire whatever means they need to defend themselves including but not limited to firearms. So this assault on firearms needs to end, which would stop the issue of trafficking of firearms. So I have to ask a question. Uh, I have it listed for later, but since you brought up firearms in the Second Amendment. Recreational nukes, yes. Okay, cool. Just wanted to, just that's that was the question. It was recreational plutonium, but, you know, recreational nukes, that's... I, Isn't plutonium so rare? I know that they were doing uranium mining up in the Grand Canyon area for a while, but... Um, I think plutonium is much more rare. They, I think they only had a sufficient amount to be able to either make Fat Man or Little Boy, one of the two that were used during the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the other one, they have a little bit more of, which was uranium. Oh, okay. Well, I think I, that's what it is, uranium-235 or something. What, my, my extensive knowledge on plutonium is it makes a DeLorean go 88 miles an hour and you travel through time. Good stuff. That's that's my extensive <laughs> knowledge on plutonium. Then I am so for recreational plutonium. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Yeah, recreational plutonium for everybody. Um, <laughs> Wait, but, that's welfare. <laughs> I support your right to acquire recreational plutonium should you desire. Right. But if you can't afford it, not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the recreational uh, nuclear weapons was the big was was where I was going with that. Cause that's one that I've, I know a lot of hardcore libertarians who even on that one, they'll back off and they'll say, I don't know about that. So that- yeah, it's funny. I mean, I know that people have a lot of concern with nuclear weapons, but the reality is, is that we are the only nation that has ever used them. No other nation has ever detonated or deployed nuclear weapons to harm another nation. Right. They may have done so in their backyard and, and you know, imploded a mountain, North Korea. I'm looking at you. But they have not ever used nuclear weapons to harm other nations. Only we have done that. So it's funny that we have this sort of overarching fear about like, well, if they acquire it, they're going to do terrible things. Well, that's like people who project qualities onto others because it's innate to them. Like saying like, I'm concerned about you cheating on me because I'm a person who cheat. Like (laughs) we are the ones who need to be stopped in that capacity. We need to 
make a good faith effort to get rid of our nuclear weapons and show the rest of the world that we're not a threat and that we don't need to keep ramping up armaments in order to somehow keep the peace. We should just use nuclear energy and focus it that way because that's way more cost effective instead of using it to make armaments. I, so. I agree totally. And what I, what I have found is most of the people who are like, who say, no, we can have nukes, but nobody else should have nukes are the same people who argue that uh, gun, like, and I agree with them here is that, you know, yeah, if more people are armed, you're going to have less crime where they're, they're arguing the exact opposite when it comes on a global scale, as opposed to just here in home. Like if everybody's, if you don't know which houses are armed, you're going to have less people breaking in, which is true because you don't want to get shot. And I understand that it probably doesn't feel good. That's one thing that I've never experienced. Thank God. Um, <laughs> I heard it stings. <laughs> I, I, I heard it's worse than a paper cut. Uh, <laughs> Depends where the paper cut is. That's, um, that's, a, that's actually pretty valid. I've had some bad ones. Um, <laughs> I think I saw an episode of Jackass where they did that, yep. where they like gave themselves paper cuts in the webbing of their toes. Oh yeah. I was like, why? Why did you do that? <laughs> I think that may have been in the movie because I remember watching that and going, "Ah, oh, that looks so uncomfortable. I don't want that. That's awful. Yeah. Why would you do that to yourself?" <laughs> um, so in one of kind of going along with the drug war thing as well as immigration, you said in an article titled "We Oppose Border Walls." that wiretaps and paid informants are more effective tools for stopping the workings of drug smuggling organizations. Libertarians tend to dislike the wiretapping. (laughs) I didn't write that article. That's my running mate's article. Oh, so your running mate wrote, I thought you wrote that. article. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that wasn't me. Oh, okay. So, uh, so you're not about the (laughs) wiretapping. No, I'm not. Okay. No. Yeah, because I because I was on your I was on uh, your website and I came across that article and then at the bottom it said your name, so I assume that you had written. Oh, okay. No. So yeah, because I was curious on that. I, I was like, that. yeah, I was like, so what would the criteria for wiretapping be? Uh, because that was I actually was very curious on that. Um, so. Okay, good to know that's not your article. No, yeah, that's it's... totally interesting now. Okay, so, so read me that section again because I want to hear it. Uh, it says that wiretaps and paid informants are more effective tools for stopping the workings of drug smuggling organizations. Okay. So I was, okay. I was curious on what the uh, criteria for wire, wiretapping would be, if it would be the blanket wiretapping that we are seeing now. or Oh, warrantless? Yeah. No, probably not. No, I don't surmise John would ever advocate for warrantless wiretapping. Right. I wouldn't I imagine that either. I was I, just, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I was just looking for clarification on it because it, it, it it's on the website. So that was my main, my main okay. question on it. I I cannot speak for him necessarily, but I'm going to take a shot in the dark because this is, at least based on that statement, this is probably what I would say would be semi-acceptable criteria, which is if there is clear evidence of wrongdoing by an individual, you know, like you are cognizant of there is clear evidence, this would hold up in an indictment, this would go to court and you could have this person found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt then you can get a warrant from a judge 
in order to do wiretapping to gain additional evidence and or become aware of other people affiliated with their wrongdoing. But the addendum to that is if we ended the war on drugs, we wouldn't need to do that at all anyway. Right. So I don't know that I'm comfortable with that statement in the first place because it's like, assuming the war on drugs is still going on, let's continue to do dastardly things. And it's like, well, if they're producing, distributing, using narcotics, none of that, <laughs> none of that harms anyone. Therefore, it's not a crime. It shouldn't be a crime just because there's a law on the books that says it's a crime doesn't mean that it's an ethical law and therefore now it's a crime. So, yeah, that's my my uh, argument. Okay. Uh, so we've got a question from uh, my very dear friend, uh, Sarah Andereg. And she said, do libertarians believe in any specific kind of firearm restrictions? Which, that means that she's probably not that close of a friend now, I'm realizing. Because, no. <laughs> no. I mean, no. I don't. We, yeah, <laughs> no, we don't. Um, no, we don't believe in firearm restrictions. Right. We, everything comes down to a matter of personal responsibility, which is that it's incumbent upon the individual to know their limitations and people that are in their immediate family or community to be cognizant of those limitations and to help guide them to make good decisions. But using a mechanism of force to dictate based on some specious grounds or a flimsy, flimsy definition, because it's always a shifting of goalposts when it comes to government. Right. It might be something that seems rational now, but tomorrow it's going to become progressively worse as they strengthen and tighten control. That is not something that we're ever really comfortable with. Self-defense is incredibly important. Most people typically regulate themselves. I personally own two firearms. One is a 22 caliber handgun. That's for practice because it's inexpensive to buy 22 rounds. And then the other one is a 45 caliber handgun. And that's because it's a man stopper. So if anybody ever tried to attack me, I could end it full stop. That's all I need. So. Right. And because of personal responsibility, that's a big reason I don't own firearms. You can't trust yourself. I can't. I, <laughs> no, there, there, there have been times in my life where it's gotten real dark and I just figured it'd be better if I just never had one around. So, yeah. I mean, that's just the way that I've always looked at it. I don't think anybody else shouldn't be allowed to have it. I have personally made the choice for myself that I shouldn't own one. Right. Now I will beat somebody with a baseball bat. Should I? if I have to, but, but that's just, you know, that's just the way it is. Um, but it's because of my belief in personal responsibility. It's like, I wasn't personally responsible to handle alcohol, even though I tried for a very long time and, uh, drugs and anything else. Like I learned these things and personal responsibility caused me to stop using all of that and not own firearm. And I think everybody else has the right to do those things. Knock yourself out. That's on you. Right. I, that's not my responsibility. So that's the same way I feel on firearms. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that at least based on my own experience and observations of other people, it's not government policy that discourages us from doing things that are unhealthy or unhelpful to ourselves. It's usually experience or observation of others. And then, of course, having people in your world, in your corner, who are truly advocates for you, looking out for you and helping guide you. I mean, all of us have made mistakes. All of us are human and we're beautifully imperfect, but we've learned from those mistakes because we've had people who've pulled for us and encouraged us and helped carry us at times where we couldn't carry ourselves. We are better for that. And that didn't require government policy. That didn't require us to pay a bureaucrat 
to tell us what we need to do with our lives. And that's why so many people are libertarians. This concept of, you know, this is something that if you forgive me for a second for going off on a tangent, this is something that always aggravates me is that, and this is no offense to your friend. This is just something that her question inspired. Um, A lot of people, when you talk to them about various different things, you say, okay, if this wasn't a law, would you go out tomorrow and murder somebody? And they're like, oh, no, I wouldn't murder anybody. Right. But my neighbor, you know, they're always concerned about somebody over there, some other, undefined other, whether it's their immediate neighbor or somebody in their world is going to do a horrible crime if they don't have these laws in place. But if you talk to that neighbor or that person in their world and ask them the exact same question, if government laws didn't exist, would you go and somehow lack morality and make these bad decisions and harm other people? They're like, no, I would never do that. <clears throat> we make laws because we're afraid of what other people are going to do. Right. Not because we don't trust ourselves, not because we need a tyrannical straitjacket to keep us in line. We're good people. We'll do the right thing. But somebody else who I haven't met and I don't know, and I'm presuming to speak for, they can't be trusted. And that's why we need a law. And that sort of nonsense is exactly why we're in the situation we're in. That's why we have people who are serving life sentences for non-crimes because we're worried about something somebody else might do. Maybe. I don't know. Right. And actually, that's the perfect segue because I was going to bring up uh, criminal justice reform. Um, Okay. So so that that worked out really well. Um, Criminal justice reform is something that I care deeply, deeply about. We've, We've got hundreds of thousands to millions of people in jail for things that they should not be in jail for victimless crimes. Uh, you've got people in on drug charges, you've got people in, uh, sex workers, you've got all of these things that are going on that should not be crimes. And I'm not talking like the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world. I'm talking about 34th street, Molly. I, I don't know. Um, 30, 30, uh, you know her too. Mm-hmm, I do. <laughs> She's great. I gave her a ride home once. Um, She's a good girl. She is. She's just working. Yeah, you know, she's just trying to make a buck. Uh, You know, (laughs) she's got skills, I hear. Um, (laughs) But you you have these issues where where people who have done, in my eyes, nothing wrong are rotting away in prison and other people are getting off. Um, I know that criminal justice reform is one of the main platforms that you have. Mm-hmm. What what is your what would your plan be? Well, I've talked about this a couple of times, but to reiterate, because I'm running for president, and because that only really meaningfully impacts federal and the executive branch, what I'm primarily focusing on is doing a massive overhaul of federal criminal justice system. So that would mean one of the things that I really, really want to do is to be able to get into office and do a major audit of every single prosecuting attorney on the federal level and look at their incarceration rate. Because right now we incentivize it so that those who convict more are considered better prosecutors, as opposed to what the original inception of our criminal justice system was, which is seeking the truth. Right. People who were prosecutors on behalf of the state or on behalf of the federal government were supposed to ascertain the truth, not withhold evidence, not engage in prosecutorial misconduct, not bully people through the media or civil asset forfeiture and to confessing to a lesser crime. Rather, they were supposed to find the capital T truth. So if I go through this audit and I look at their incarceration rate or their conviction rate, I will undoubtedly see that they prized conviction over the truth. 
and that they put people who didn't deserve to be put in prison away, or they put people who didn't deserve the sentences they got away for far longer. And they will be immediately disbarred and forced to get a job in the private sector doing something that does not involve them ever touching law again, because that is just criminal. That to me, more so than the breaking of a law, the erosion of civil liberties, the erosion of the entire foundation of our criminal justice system and the fact that we do treat everyone like a criminal, whether they've done something wrong or not, that is the worst thing to me. So I really want to stop that completely. And then anyone who is a victimless criminal on a federal level, anyone who is a political prisoner on a federal level, I want to pardon them immediately and see a reinstitution of their rights. I can't give them back the time that they lost, which is greatly unfortunate but I can give them back now. So that is something that is just very, very big to me. And then of course, whatever I can, in my ideal world, the founder of the Innocence Project or the Equal Justice Initiative, those two men would be my, my attorney. I'd want them as my attorney general because it would just be amazing to have them on my team. No, absolutely. That would, that, see, you're, you're already building a cabinet I like. So... <laughs> Have you ever, are you familiar with the Equal Justice Initiative? I just found out about them semi-recently. I, I don't know them, but I know the Innocence Project. Okay. So, Brian, I heard about this on a podcast I listened to called Criminal. I don't know if you've ever heard that podcast, mm-hmm. but it's really, really good. And it was, it was called um, Just Mercy was the name of the episode, which is also the name of Brian Stevenson's book that he just wrote. And he is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama. And they have been huge advocates for people who've been wrongfully convicted children who have been tried as adults and been penalized thusly, people who are mentally incompetent to be held to the same standards. Um, They've been major advocates. And his book, Just Mercy, had such a huge, profound impact on me. It was both beautifully compassionate and heartbreaking, some of the cases that they faced. Just it's, it's astonishing to me how we do this. And it continues to happen. And we don't cry out about it more often. They just had another really good podcast where they talked about Curtis Flowers in Mississippi who had been convicted of a quadruple or quintuple homicide. And he was found, the prosecuting attorney, the district attorney, Doug Evans, had been found to have committed prosecutorial um, misconduct. And so it was appealed. And then he just turned around and retried him. And that didn't just happen once. It happened six times. Six times this Curtis Flowers was tried and convicted of murdering these people on completely superficial grounds. Totally, there was no evidence. There were, you know, jailhouse informants and some specious allegations put forth, but there was no real evidence to prove that he actually did anything. And he still has been sitting in prison for, I think it's what, 27 years? It happened, it's over 20 years And just recently went before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court found that his prosecuting attorney was guilty of a Batson violation, which is when you typically have, you crowd out uh, African-Americans. You ensure that there's more of a homogenous jury. So you strike out anybody who would have more diversity. So they found it responsible for a Batson violation and again, overturned the conviction. But now that guy is talking about trying him a seventh time. Like this is insanity. So yeah. just crazy stuff happens. And it's, these are people's lives caught in the fray. In, in Tennessee uh, recently, they had, um, 
what was that guy? Matthew Charles. Um, he was convicted years ago for, I, I believe it was a drug possession, and he was in jail for a really long time. And for, And he recently got pardoned, but they tried him, they let him go, and then uh, they said that he didn't finish his time, so they just arrested him again and made him finish out the rest of his time. And then he got, he ended up, he just got pardoned uh, maybe four or five months ago, and he's out now. But, like, this the criminal justice system in America is, it, it is broken. It is broken. Yeah. It is, I, I hate saying it, like I hate using racist because people have dumbed it down to the point that it doesn't even mean anything anymore. But so right. much of the criminal justice system is racist and it goes against everything that America is supposed to be in my mind. Right. Now the, the whole point and purpose of having that criminal justice system as it was originally designed was to allow anyone, regardless of ethnic background or economic class or station, it was to afford them equivalent representation right. in the criminal justice system. And that erosion of civil liberties and the elimination of habeas corpus and mens rea or other things that are incredibly important and part of that foundation means that we are disproportionately convicting minorities. We are disproportionately convicting impoverished people who can't afford a better defense. And that is what we're filling up our prisons with. Right. And that's one. I worked uh, briefly with a nonprofit, the Maliberty Initiative. And one of the things that they're working on is free market solutions to the criminal justice system. And they were doing, they do a lot of great work and I respect everybody there uh, very much. And, uh, they're working on getting uh, a ban the box kind of thing in a free market way where companies would agree to take the box off of the, have you ever been convicted, which that huge step in the right direction. It allows yeah. people to actually reintegrate into society. Um, it's been something that I've cared about a lot since I got involved in a libertarian movement is criminal justice reform. So it's good to see you passionate about that because it is a broken, broken system that needs to uh, definitely be fixed. Um, yeah, for sure. Other, something else that definitely needs to be fixed. When you're elected, how long would the Department of Education be around? <laughs> well, oh, goodness. Um, well, no greater than four years. <laughs> That's probably the best way to put it. When we, you know, we were talking about this because even though the probability is not in our favor of getting elected, this is just a reality of running as a third party and the stranglehold that the two major parties have on politics. Um, it's still important for us to view this from the perspective of this is what I would do. This is my hundred days plan. This is the cabinet that I would staff. And I was looking at all of the different positions that are currently part of the cabinet and like 75% of them aren't even constitutional. You know, there's no department that they can justifiably manage because it's not actually afforded by the Constitution. It's something that should be allocated to states based on the 10th Amendment. Right. So Department of um, Education is a really good example. Department of Education absolutely was never supposed to be under the purview of the federal government. That was incumbent upon communities to the greatest extent and then the state to a significantly lesser extent to provide. Like public education wasn't even really a thing that we did until the industrialization of our nation. So, yeah, I <clears throat> I do believe that we should absolutely abolish that department. I would not staff that seat. I think that that's something that we need to privatize. And I think that if we 
relinquish the stranglehold we have on people's tax dollar and permitted them to have more of the wage that they earned, they could then in turn afford much better education on their own terms. Right. And then with private charities being more prevalent in those societies, uh, people would be able to go to them to be like, hey, I want to get my kid into this school. And they'd be able to pick the school in which the student, their, their son and or daughter or Z would uh, be able to go to. Right. And there's a lot of private schools that have alums who will set up a foundation to help people pay, you know, help people who want to go to that school and have the academic achievement or whatever other requirement, but couldn't necessarily afford to go. I went to an all-girls Catholic school for high school, and we have quite a few people who are alumni of Xavier who do that very thing so that you can have other people who couldn't normally afford to pay the tuition covered and get that superior education. You're not going to learn science very well because, you know, it conflicts with the whole religious aspect, but your writing and your history is going to be awesome. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, make a, uh, I'll teach writing to anybody. That'll be fun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no no write whatever you want i don't care no no that's great you need to learn the difference between there there and there once you figure that out come back come back to the internet and make it the memes right <laughs> um shane sweeney says his only request is when you get elected appoint me to the departments you want done away with and then he'll hold a press conference justifying it to the people thanking you and all that <laughs> Oh, that's sweet. I'm sorry. I'm like blotting my face now because I'm crying because it's like hot in here. But um, I'm like, oh, Shane. Stop. Yeah, deal. Absolutely. Shane's awesome. I would totally do that. Yeah, yeah. No, I love Shane. Shane's great. Yeah, I'm like, we've got like at least 25 things that you can pick from. So right. whatever you want to do, buddy, just make it a good we'll, pitch. Well, just have him do all of them. Just go, okay, we're going in this order. You're just going to keep getting appointed to the next department. Yeah, you could be like, everybody reach under your chair. They pull out a piece of paper and it's like, these are all the departments that are gone now. Everybody's abolished. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that I did have a question about, uh, open debate inclusion for all candidates. Would there be any limitation to that? No. No? We'd we'd do like the Democrats are doing right now with like 20... 20 different people on stage. Well, 10 yeah, but we could do it more like, um, we could do it more like your Thunderdome thing. Oh. Like instead of it being like a stage, that's like one line, right. we could do like all the way around and maybe just have the audience sit on a rotating disc. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, um, whoever, if it's a private enterprise, you know, if it's a private foundation or organization that puts it on, then the criteria that they want to establish for it is entirely up to them. And that needs to be honored because it is a, a private organization. Right. It's their property, their rules, whatever. So if they want to say, you know, you have to have filed with the FEC, you have to have raised a certain threshold, you have to have ballot access in X amount of states, then, and that's the criteria they want to use to vet candidates, that's fine. Um, but if they want to make it really interesting and get lots of sponsorship, and have a very, very exciting debate, I strongly encourage them to have me on because I will light that bitch on fire. I, w- <laughs> I would love to see... <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, Probably you can, not. You know, you can but say, I want to set it on fire. Yeah, you can say whatever you want on this show. I was, you know, whatever. Okay, good. Um, I would love to see a debate between Donald Trump and you and 
whoever wins for the Democrats, it'd be great if it was Marianne Williamson because that'd just be fun. Uh, and like Vermin Supreme and Jill Stein and some other Ralph Nader, if he's still, I don't even know if he's still alive. And just probably. right, probably he's not going anywhere. <laughs> just have this huge debate with everybody. That would be so much fun, and it would actually educate people on different options as opposed oh, to yeah. you've got yeah. this side of the coin or this side of the coin and you're going to hear donald trump say wrong a lot like that <laughs> fake news yeah it's that was a very good impression by the way Thank your you. one word you got that. <laughs> wrong <laughs> um yeah no i would much prefer it if there was you know kind of a wide strata of ideologies put before the American people and they were permitted to truly hear the way these different ideologies are and what our solutions or ideas would be right now. Like when we do the libertarian party debates, there's precious little difference in the overarching philosophy that I hold with what any other, what any of the other candidates hold. So in order to sort of distinguish yourself, you have to kind of, it's harder to distinguish yourself when you're, when you're so much aligned and the same thing is true of the Democrats. I mean, there's Tulsi was a standout because she was the only one who was anti-war, but everybody else talked about what varying degrees of welfare they were going to enact. You know, that's, that's, so people are just like, wow, goodness, do I want more of social security or more of these benefits? Like maybe you need somebody up there who's like, no, you don't need them at all. You should be able to plan for your own retirement. Right. You should be able to have your own money. So, right. I mean, there's boomers out there that would be very disappointed in that statement. But like, no, no, I was promised my social security and I'm getting it. I will give you back what you paid and nothing more. Because I think that's fair. That's fair. That is that is fair. I've if I've paid in. I don't know how much money the social security. I never figured out. I don't even, can you look that up? Oh, I think, you know, I. I think you get a statement from the Social Security Administration every year that you typically around tax time, I believe, that'll specify how much you have paid to date. I believe mine is one hundred and seventy two dollars. So I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm sure it's a lot more than that. (laughs) I was like, have you not worked ever? No, I've been working since I was like 17. So I hope it's you know what? I hope it is $172. If all they took from me was $172, I'm doing okay. Right. I'd, I'd, I'd be like, you know what? You can keep it. I'm, I'm fine. That's right. Go buy yourself something nice. Right. This one's on me. <laughs> don't, don't spend it all on one dinner, okay? Spread that out. Um, <laughs> Go buy some pens with caps on them, for God's sakes. So uh, I know that in November, you're going to be in South Carolina. This is true. Yes. yes. I believe that the entire Muddied Waters media crew is going to be there at that event. Well, that's very exciting. Yes. I'm very excited about that event. It's, it will also be the first time that the members of Muddied Waters media ever meet each other in person. Oh, how sweet. It's like a family reunion. Yeah. With it's... a family that's never met. Right. Like you were all adopted. <laughs> We were we were all adopted in different states, and we just talked to each other over over the internet. Oh, that's cute! That'll be fun. Yeah, it's gonna be a good time. Um, so, besides that big event on uh, November second, I believe is when that is. Um, what other things do you have coming up? Well, 
I actually have to get off the horn pretty quick here because I need to pack and prepare to go to Massachusetts this weekend. So okay. I'm going to go to their convention, which will also be, uh, there will be a debate that Matt Welch is hosting and it will be televised as well. Okay. So I'm going to do that. And I believe my shuttle picks me up at 2 a.m. So I'm excited. <laughs> I was like, we're staying up all night. We're... And then at 1.45. You're right. <laughs> That's... <laughs> That's me every time I'm like, okay, I've got a 5 a.m. flight. I'm just going to stay up all night long, which I always I do, but I can't sleep on planes. So the next day, like my first day at wherever I'm at, I'm like, don't just go away. I don't want to talk right. to you. <laughs> I'm going to get in Massachusetts and be like, is this Japan? Where, where am I? I feel like forever. Why is everybody so. dropping their R's? It's not hard to say an <laughs> ah. Why are you talking like that? Um, <laughs> so uh, if people want to support you learn more about you where can they go what can they see what can they plug every plug all of the things all the things okay to reiterate my name is kim ruff and i am seeking the libertarian party nomination for president in 2020 if you'd like to learn more you can find out at www.ruffphillips2020.com that's spelled r-u-f-f like dog barking Phillips 2020.com. Also, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest. You're on Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. You're on Instagram. Yeah, we're on all the things. You're on all. You you have a very strong. Snapchatting going on. Is there? I don't don't know. Maybe. I'm on LinkedIn. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You can find me there. It's like. 75% 75% manufacturing professionals and then 25% libertarians. My LinkedIn's like more appropriate. Right. My <laughs> my LinkedIn is a 25% real estate agents, 25% people that I've met that added me randomly and I don't even know what they do, and then 50% libertarians. And somehow Charlie Kirk got on there. I don't know. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't know who that is. So I'm, I don't know why I'm asking, like yeah. acting excited. I'm like, oh person's name yeah oh he sounds interesting now he's a turning point usa guy uh and i was like how did i end up being friends with you on here okay weird um but uh so yeah everybody needs to go out read read all of your stuff because i i I, your website didn't have any typos so i mean right there you're winning in my mind um What a low bar we've set. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of is. Like, yeah. they, they proofread this. This is great. Um, yeah. But no, uh, <laughs> go out, everybody, check out Kim Ruff, roughphillips2020.com. Right? Yeah. Ruff, <laughs> roughphillips2020.com. Um, do you have anything else that you would like to say to all of the people out there in the interwebs on the interhighway? Um. Well, just thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you guys tuning in. And of course, congratulations on your one year anniversary. Oh, thank you. I forgot again. <laughs> hey. hey. I have make, that effect on people. Yeah, just make just me <laughs> just brighten my entire day. Oh, yeah. I've been doing this for a year now. Um, well, yeah. No, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I know that you have to pack for Massachusetts. Uh, say hi to the Red Sox for me. And. Um, if you want to hang out, I'm going to do the outro. If you want to hang out for a minute so I can talk to you afterwards, if that's cool. Okay. Cool. Beautiful. That's fine. 
everybody else, remember that you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash muddiedwatersmedia. You can follow us on Instagram at muddiedwatersmedia. You can follow us on Twitter at muddied underscore waters. And you can follow us on YouTube at youtube.com slash muddiedwatersmedia. And you can find this in, oh wait, Anchor FM. Uh, if you're starting a podcast, use Anchor FM, download the app today. Um, and you can find us at anchor.fm slash muddiedwaters. And you can find this in every episode at muddiedwatersoffreedom.com. Com. Uh, have a great weekend. Starting tomorrow, we have Jason Lyon with Mr. America, the Bearded Truth. Then we're taking two days off. Jason Lyon comes back to uh, go through the weekend events. And then next Tuesday, Spike and I will be right here doing Muddied Waters of Freedom. And next Wednesday, Spike has an all-new episode of My Fellow Americans. And then next Thursday, join me right here for whatever show the writer's block whatever show this is uh with whoever my guest is going to be because i don't have that written down in my notes so have a great weekend uh enjoy whatever it is you're gonna do and uh yeah have fun i am i am i am swinging from a seven story window Throwing parties in a 10 by 7 cell It's astounding the legs I'll go To convince the whole damn world I don't need anybody's help Yeah, I am waving while I drown Don't bother swimming out to save me I will only drag you down I'll try to use your body as a life raft Cause if there's room enough for one There must be room enough for two I'll sail the good ship you into the sunset Spin on savory waters of the liver's blue. Yeah.